Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the pubcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in the world of nutrition. We got a real treat for you this evening. Uh, we're at the Future Directions in Choline Symposia, and that's sponsored uh, and put on by the University of North Carolina Nutrition Research Institute. Uh, joining me tonight, uh, first of all, I'm going to introduce my co-host, um, Tom Druk. Tom is a senior manager for Balchem Corporation. And our two special guests, we've got with us uh, Dr. Steve Hursting. Uh, he is the Institute's director and uh, the deputy director, which is Dr. Susan Smith. And so welcome to both of you guys. I understand you guys put this conference on for us uh, this week. Thanks, great to be here. Yeah, super. Yeah. So I'm gonna start off. I'd like to, one of you uh, to, to tell me, what was the inspiration for this symposia? Well, choline has emerged as a very important nutritional factor for all, really all across the life course. Early development of brains and normal liver function um, all the way through to the end of life and its impact on cognitive uh, issues uh, later in life. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, with COVID, there's, there's been a period where, um, there, you know, there haven't been opportunities to get uh, the latest research and, the, and all the leading researchers together um, to update each other, to uh, really build the momentum in this area. Uh, and so this is the opportunity. It's been a major focus at our institute and um, what a pleasure to have uh, really 85 uh, of, you know, leading scientists in the area, um, including some really emerging stars in the field. And that's, that's really important for them to come together uh, but to update each other on our research and to, um, again, build that kind of uh, forward momentum uh, that all fields really need to, uh, to, to drive the next, next uh, sort of wave of research in, in this area. So it's, we're really looking forward to, uh, to the next few days. Yeah, that's exciting. Susan, can you tell us a little bit about what the audience can expect to hear over the next couple of days? Sure. So... The last time I think that researchers have gotten together and really thought about what we need from choline was back in 1998 when mm. we set the first guidelines. And so much we've learned since then. And it's a chance for us to now share all these new discoveries. So we're going to hear from people who are looking at the role of choline during pregnancy and lactation, during early infant growth and development, uh, the functions in the liver, the potential role of choline in addressing some of the health challenges that can accompany obesity. Uh, we've got a speaker going to address Alzheimer's disease. And then I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard about maybe there's this link with this choline metabolite called TMAO and heart disease. And so we're going to talk about the new data that are coming out about that and what they're actually telling us about choline needs and, oh. and human health. Yeah, great overview. So what does success look like when we're done here in a couple of days? Uh, what, what allows you guys to spike the ball? Well, I, you know, I think a consensus about the future directions of research uh, in particular, there, you know, there's enough evidence around the, the impact of choline and, and uh, healthy development, particularly brains, cog cognitive development, um, liver health. I think there's, there's you know, over the last, since 1998, <laughs> um, a huge amount of data accumulated, tremendous 
uh, data coming from clinical trials, testing, whether choline supplementation improves health of, 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 the, of babies, uh, offsets the effects of obesity and, and other drivers of fatty liver disease. Uh, some emerging data, again, on the later life issues that I think many of us worry about. As I'm aging, I worry about it. What can we do to, to prevent that? Um, and so I think what success looks like is really coming to a consensus on where we are in the field. Um, how do we communicate those findings to the general public, uh, to our colleagues um, that are making decisions about our grants, for one, um, but also to the, the decision makers, to policy makers. And, um, and so that, I think coming up with that consensus and also having a great time with yeah. our colleagues uh, and, and, and kind of you know, sharing our data and, uh, and our hopes and dreams for the next wave of studies um, is, is just a, I, I, that's, that's a, a touchdown in my mind. Yeah. Yep. Well said. Looking forward to it. Tom, any uh, questions? No, I just think it's great to hear. I hear the context that you put it in, Susan, of choline throughout the lifespan and so many different aspects. And I almost think of this as the, you know, choline 25 years since 1998. It's a young nutrient. It's very early yeah. in its development. So hopefully this is going to just be part of the beginning of a long choline lifespan of research. So. Well, that would be splendid. I often refer to choline as the nutrient that no one knows about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, we need to change that. It, it doesn't have a vitamin we start today. label on it, <laughs> so <laughs> we start today. Uh, I think one other fun uh, aspect of getting folks together is we, we have, we've had the father of choline, really, who, who was really a driver of that first 25 years of research, Stephen Zizel. Uh, was our first director of the Nutrition Research Institute. So this is an opportunity for the field to come together and really thank him for what he's contributed and honor him for the hard work that he's done to set the stage. And uh, so we look forward to that as, yeah. a, as a way to honor and, and really thank him for what he's, what he's given all of us. An yeah. exciting way to pass the torch, for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, and that's a great segue because uh, Stephen is going to be uh, the next uh, interviewer. Oh, great. Uh, the interviewee, I should say. So be looking forward to hearing what he says. Thank you guys for joining us, and, and thank you for putting on this conference. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank, thank you, you for much. joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. And our next guest is actually the honored guest of the symposia this week. Uh, before I get into uh, introducing our guest, I'd like to introduce my co-host. I've actually got two co-hosts for this segment, so Dr. Zizel, that must mean you're uh, doubly important. Uh, the first co-host is Dr. Eric Capio, and he's a uh, senior scientist... Uh, you, you honor me, uh, Nutrition Science Manager. Nutrition Science Manager. And I got Tom Druk over here, and Tom is the Senior Manager of Marketing for Choline here at Balchem. Right. So thank you both for joining me. And then our honored guest, Dr. Steven Zizel. Uh, Dr. Zizel, I really enjoyed your presentation last night. Before we get into that, what I'd like to have you do is just talk a little bit about yourself, right? You, you've got quite an impressive resume. Uh, if you will, in terms of the, the list of schools that you've gone to. So if you wouldn't mind uh, just kind of walking us through that and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I, I uh, went to MIT as an undergraduate. I went to Harvard Medical School. I was a resident at Yale New Haven Hospital in Pediatrics. I then went on to get a, a PhD from MIT in nutrition and metabolism. 
And then I was a professor at Boston University School of Medicine, and then in 1990 uh, was, uh, came to the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and was asked to create uh, a, a nutrition department that bridged the School of Medicine and the School of Public Health. Hmm. Did that for 15 years. Happily, uh, that department uh, grew nicely and uh, was ranked as uh, one of the top five in the country. At that point, I saw there wasn't much upside and down, a lot of downside to where that department could go. And so I moved on and decided to create a new research institute at the university that focused on um, precision nutrition or using all of the information that we could pull together to try to identify why people differ from each other in how they need nutrients and uh, how they respond to them. And so I created the Nutrition Research Institute, which is part of the organizers for this meeting today. I uh, now am a happily um, emeritus uh, professor, uh, and uh, now my major interests are helping people who want to do choline research and doing my bonsai trees. Mm, very interesting. Now, speaking of choline, the, you gave a presentation last evening to the audience. It was titled History and Contribution in Choline Science. Uh, can you kind of give us just an overview? Yeah, I know you went through a lot, but I found it very interesting, sure. starting from the very beginning to, uh, to where it ended up. So uh, at the time I entered uh, research, in my Ph.D. years and thereafter, uh, people didn't believe that choline was required nutrient for humans. Um, there had been some studies showing that dogs needed it and that rats needed it to survive, um, and dogs who didn't get enough developed liver troubles. But all the textbooks said humans didn't need it, and I couldn't understand why the textbooks would say that, because if dogs, rats, and mice and everybody else needs it, why wouldn't humans need it? And so I was uh, able to write grants in my first years as a professor, as assistant professor, um, that were funded by the National Institutes of Health to do a critical study. And that study was one in which we put people in a research hospital, we controlled their diet completely for 42 days, and after a period of 10 days giving them a complete diet that contains choline, we gave them the same diet but pulled the choline out of it. And we asked, did they get sick? And lo and behold, most men and most postmenopausal women got sick. And premenopausal women were a little different and slightly less than half of them got sick. And by sick, I mean they developed liver damage or muscle damage and fatty liver. And our design of our study was such that we had to stop feeding them the choline-deficient diet as soon as they presented with one of those problems and give them choline back and show that we could reverse it. And we let them go from the study after we reversed it by just giving them the same diet but putting the choline back in. And how deficient were they in choline, those diets? Um, it was about 10% of what we think the adequate amount is. That's the lowest we could get and still feed them some kind of things that look like food. 
And again, 42 days is a long time to be trapped in a hospital with everybody watching what you're eating. Um, and so that study went well, and the first study was only in men, um, and we showed that uh, when you did that, men required it. And we then repeated the same design in using women, and we found, as I said, that postmenopausal women looked a lot like men, and premenopausal didn't. So it seemed logical there was something different about premenopausal women than postmenopausal women, and obviously that's estrogen. And so we looked back and found that estrogen turns on the ability to make some of your own choline in the liver. And that estrogen rises very sharply during pregnancy so that by the third trimester, it's reaching a maximum. And that's exactly when this ability to turn on your, your ability to make new choline is maximal. So women were designed during pregnancy to um, make some of their own choline. And that was extremely interesting to us. At, and as I said, at the same time, we were studying infants, and we found that uh, the mother is delivering huge amounts of choline to the infant during pregnancy. And so that's probably why women were designed to be a little less sensitive to diet than men are, because they have to bring a baby to pregnancy to successful pregnancy. And we f then wondered, what is that choline doing? And we started to look at brain development. And uh, other researchers were that are presenting and I talked about uh, found that uh, you could affect memory in mouse and rat models. And we were able to show that you could actually, with choline in the diet, giving some or not giving some to pregnant mice could change how the stem cells that will form the brain multiply and form the structures of brain. And that was a permanent effect. If you missed a critical window in time, you never could make it up by feeding the baby mouse properly. And so um, that, that was one long area of research for us. And... Um, the other point of my talk is, is that when I started in 1970s and 80s, there was very little interest in choline, and now there are hundreds of publications each year, and that's this meeting is t presenting some of the newest research in the field. Mm. Very interesting. Eric, what kind of questions you might have? See. You know, I'm, I'm so curious. I love the fact that you talked so much about how, you know, this sort of first hundred-ish years of choline hmm. was a fairly lonely place in your words, right? And well, I wasn't there for the whole hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> um, then now this post-IOM report, 25 years, yeah. maybe walk us through some of the changes that you saw, maybe that you expected, some that you didn't, and then perhaps where you see the next 25 years going. Sure. Uh, I think that um, most of the research in choline... Um, occurred uh, around the biochemistry of choline, uh, you know, what it was used for, what it looked like. And it wasn't until um, there was a human function for choline that it was important to humans that people became more interested. And so in um, uh, the paper that 
first showed that humans required choline, that first study in men in the hospital, appeared in 1991. And so by 1998, the U.S. Uh, Institute of Medicine, which is now the National Academy of Medicine, uh, uh, made uh, dietary recommendations, what people think of as the recommended daily allowances. And they went through, and for the first time ever, in 1998, choline was included. And that was a, a governmental, a semi-governmental, expert report. And once that was present, um, researchers became much more interested. The textbooks changed about choline. Um, and the number of investigators starting to work in the field started to multiply, and they came up with interesting results. And uh, by... Um, 2016, the European equivalent of the FDA uh, and the Institute of Medicine report came out with their own. It's called EFSA, and they came out with a report saying choline is required and recommended how much people should be taking in at various ages. And that helped on the European side to make the recommendations. The Food and Drug Administration in 2007 uh, became interested in choline because we reported that it wasn't really an infant formula at the concentrations that it's in mother's milk. And they said, gee, um, if it's important for brain development and mother's milk has it, well, infant formula certainly should have it. And they required all commercial manufacturers in 2007 to modify their content to mimic what's in human milk. That was a big thing. And by uh, 2016... Uh, 10 years later, nine years later, the FDA went on to say that when you label foods, the food labels should include, can include choline. And they set up uh, uh, recommended daily intakes that could be used on the food labels at that point. So that's a big thing because now the consumer is starting to see choline is in, they can look for what contains a good amount of choline. I'm curious, how did you establish what those requirements were? Were there dose titration trials so, done? No. So the human study that I talked about, uh, which eventually included about 165 adult humans, we never did children because we weren't allowed to, um, showed that for most people, if we gave them a, a certain amount of choline, we could reverse the damage we caused by taking it away. And for a 70-kilogram man, that was 550 milligrams. For a woman who weighed less, the committee who made up the references figured, well, 400 milligrams, 425, should be about right, because that's just weight reduction calculation. For children, they said, uh, well, we don't have any children's data, but um, we know that uh, breast milk contains a certain amount, and we know how much breast milk on average a baby takes. And since breast milk is probably designed properly, we will take that amount and set it as what the infant should have rather than just taking body weight and reducing it from adults. And for pregnant women, they said, well, a woman requires about 400 milligrams, and it takes about 50 more a day to make a baby, so we'll add 50 in. And those calculations were rough, but that's how the recommendations came about. The Europeans who did it 16 years later 
did a few more elegant calculations, but in the end they came out with recommendations within 25 or 30 milligrams of what the American recommendations are. Okay. So it came out roughly the same, but there wasn't a huge amount of information to base it on except that adult men required choline. And later on when we studied women, that women required it, but they didn't adjust it based on genetics, which they probably would if they revisited it today. Yeah, I'm kind of curious, uh, based on the research that's uh, recently come out of Cornell, where it shows that um, mothers uh, taking choline during gestation, it'll improve the mental acuity, and I don't know if that's the right word, of the offspring. I'm wondering if they may want to consider revising those based on on that. Do we yeah, know so how I, much is required? I think, at, again, at the time, the recommendations, and in nutrition language, it's called DRIs, dietary yeah. reference intakes. That panel met in 1998. We didn't know nearly as much. Yeah. Nearly just a few men studying men. Now we know a ton more, and it's time to revisit the DRIs. Um, we know now that uh, women are different from men in some ways, so that recommendation could get adjusted. Two, we know that uh, about 10% of men need much more, 850, to get better. We know that genetics makes a difference and that the people aren't all the same in their genetics. It depends where they came from, Europe or Africa or Asia, and that they have different um, genetic variants that might make them more or less susceptible to eating a low choline diet, and that could be used to adjust it. All that could be considered now and uh, would be very much worth revisiting. Mm. And um, how to get that done is a good question. Mm. Uh, the, in the United States, the dietary reference intake panels that make these considerations um, have a process now that they go through. The last one they did was for energy intake in 2021. They haven't done one since. And they need a governmental organization like the U.S. Department of Agriculture or the uh, NIH to sort of uh, sign on to uh, taking on uh, that this is a worthwhile question to take on and participate in some of the funding. And so that's a, a, a question of how do you, there are probably many nutrients that could use reconsideration. How do you get that accomplished and um, make it happen? The first time we were extremely fortunate that um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has a division called the Agricultural Research Service, and the director of that had attended a number of talks on choline and became convinced it was important. And so when the panel to consider the B vitamins was being put together in the 90s, she was part of the funding for that panel, and she insisted that choline be included because she felt it was worth consideration. And that was a major inflection point in scientists and clinicians, health professionals being interested in choline because for the first time they had an expert panel say, this should be something you think about. So what are you especially excited for in the next 25 years of choline research? You've seen a lot of change over these past however many years. Where do you see this going and what particularly excites you? Well, you know, I, I think that um, nutrition is a really complicated area. 
uh, there are there's metabolism, and we know now that it varies greatly between people based on their genetics, but probably also based on their the microbes in their gut, the microbiome, on their behaviors, on food processing, on a thousand things, and humans are overwhelmed with that type of complexity. But the advent of um, artificial intelligence, the ability to use massive computer power to think about what all this data means, really promises that we could handle much more complex questions than we have in the past, and we could be much more precise in telling people what are, what's their metabolism like, which nutrients are they most likely to have to be more careful about, what diets might help them do that, um, what supplements might help them do that. And so I'm very hopeful that this area of precision nutrition can, will develop markedly. I think that, um, and, and again, I'm trying to move that forward by focusing uh, commercially on the genetics. Can we offer women the, and men a genetic test that tells them whether they need more or less choline? But that's a very crude beginning, and I see that in the next years we'll have developed the data that can train these massive computers to say what are the patterns, how can we tell that somebody needs more choline and do it very precisely and tell them they should get it during pregnancy or they should get it when they're older. Um, and we'll do a great job at that. And we have to start simple so the genetics are the most developed and that's why I'm starting with the genetics. But other people are working on the microbiome. Eventually we'll be able to put the two together and then maybe we'll get to the harder problems of uh, you know, what is food processing doing to the food or this or that, but but we can build it slowly, but maybe the way things are going with artificial intelligence, that'll occur a lot faster than I ever thought it could with simple human brains. Hmm. I know one of the <clears throat> one of the things that you've worked on, Dr. Zysel, since moving mm -hmm. on to this new stage, is um, you're, you're working with a company that actually develops um, a you know, proprietary test yeah. and identifies more of that. Maybe give you an opportunity a little bit to inform how your research into the genetics and testing. Sure, I'd, I'd love to do that. So first of all, for uh, women who are pregnant, um, th there are a number of very common genetic variations that people, women can have. It's, and some of them increase their choline requirements greatly, and pregnancy is a time when they have to deliver a lot of choline to the growing fetus and infant. And um, uh, we can identify who those women are and recommend a prenatal uh, vitamin that contains adequate amounts of choline, because unfortunately, almost none of them do. And the f some that do contain just a touch to be able to put on their label, but not the amount needed. And it, as pointed out in earlier, uh, there are some studies out of Cornell that suggest that women may need much more than right now the current adequate recommendation is to have the best baby they could have. And so uh, those genetic tests for women and then the second product that's about to come to market is we can identify men, about 15% of men in the United States who have a genetic variation that makes it hard 
it makes their sperm not swim well that can be overcome by giving the things in metabolism that they have trouble making and then make them theoretically fertile again. And so that the second product is a product in male sperm. And then some of the research for the future is uh, some people are susceptible to fatty liver as they get fat, as they get obese. And fatty liver causes problems in metabolism like insulin insensitivity and type 2 diabetes. So if we could identify who's susceptible, we can show that they can reverse it with choline and a few other nutrients to reverse that. So again, a genetic test that can identify those men is coming down the road. Interesting. And that company is SNP Therapeutics, if people want to look it up. <coughs> SNP. You know, I've been very impressed with the, uh, the, the list of presenters that, that have been presenting here. Uh, the audience that you've assembled represents some of the best researchers uh, in the country. Um, so it's very technical. If, if you could just kind of, I know this is a scientific audience, but if you could boil it down, if you were uh, in front of a, a, a consumer audience, what would be one uh, key takeaway that you would uh, talk to consumers about? Sure. So... Um We've had outstanding data that's been reproduced in many, many laboratories around the country, from many laboratories, that choline affects the development of the brain um, in animal models. And now we're starting to see in this conference and in recent uh, research around the world that similar things can be seen in people. And that's an extremely important piece because mice aren't people but mm -hmm. we get our hints from mice and then we can ask and people does it happen so I, I'm seeing presentations here that um, mothers who got a diet supplement of choline during pregnancy their children seven years later are doing better on certain types of memory testing their attention is better a big problem for us in this country I'm seeing studies that uh, babies who were exposed to alcohol while they were in utero because their mothers drank um, have problems with cognition and thinking and attention and that the first studies are g coming out now that it, um, they can make a difference by giving choline early in life and reversing some of that loss in cognitive ability. And in fact, uh, that um, there may be a genetic test that can tell you which babies are going to do better when given that choline than others so that you can focus and target the treatment to the babies who need it most. Um, and so there are a number of talks in this, these two days that are starting to say uh, we can move the hints that we got from studies in animals to people. And it's those people studies that are going to convince the uh, prenatal uh, manufacturers that they better cook choline in, that the governmental agencies should revisit the choline recommendations. And the FDA, uh, again, when they think about infant formula or prenatal uh, vitamins, should be making recommendations. And most important, we might penetrate the medical and health professional organizations better because uh, they've been slow to take up the, the fact that choline is an important nutrient. You can't continue to 
for instance, intravenously feed people in the hospital with solutions that contain so little choline that they get liver damage and liver treatment. You have to do something. And you can't take women during pregnancy and give them uh, no advice that increases their choline so that they reach at least the recommended intake, because in America we're about 30% below the recommended intake, and America is a well-nourished population, and when I looked in the Gambia in Africa, they were at half the rec or less than half the recommended intake. There's a lot of women going around not realizing that they either have to eat differently or take a prenatal that corrects for their eating habits um, and get choline in it. So I think, and we're learning today that as you get older, uh, uh, memory and other things may be affected later in life. And so, you know, I think it's this kind of research that will help to make uh, health professionals pay attention and governmental organizations to make recommendations that the health professionals need to follow. Dr. Zizel, this has been very interesting. I uh, appreciate you. you spending time with us here this afternoon. And uh, I, I really, really appreciate and want to thank you for your contributions to choline research. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. My pleasure. You're very welcome. New research is changing everything we thought we knew about choline's impact on the cow and her calf and top scientists have a lot to say about it. They are presenting new research that supports choline as a required nutrient to optimize milk production, choline as a required nutrient to support a healthy transition, choline as a required nutrient to improve calf health and growth, and choline as a required nutrient to increase colostrum quantity. This new research is solidifying choline's role as a required nutrient for essentially every cow, regardless of health status, milk production level, or body condition score. Learn more about the science that is changing the game and the choline source that is making it happen. Reassure Precision Release Choline from Balchem. Visit balchem.com slash scientists say to learn more. So our next guest is Dr. Kevin Klatt. He's a Ph.D. and a reg uh, registered dietitian. He's from the University of California, Berkeley. And, uh, Kevin, this is not your first time on the Real Science Exchange. This is actually your repeat second. So, repeat offender. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So welcome back. We always like it when people come back. Um, <laughs> so first of all, would you mind just kind of give us an overview of who is Kevin? What are you all about? Oh, gosh, that's a scary question. It uh, is. That's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> Let me go have an existential crisis real quick. <laughs> um, so I am a, a research scientist. I, I kind of, I guess, identify as more of a translational researcher. So I do some work in preclinical uh, models, so animal and cell systems. And then also I do work in human intervention studies um, and try and connect them and thread the loop where I can. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess that's, I, I, well, I try and say pretty nutrient agnostic. And so as you guys just saw my talk, I don't like to be a one nutrient person necessarily. And choline's a fun topic for that because it has so many intersections with metabolism with multiple other nutrients, uh, some, many of which I try and study. So it's, it's fun. Yeah. So why don't we uh, jump into that based on that last comment. So your topic was uh, choline 
and DHA. So multiple uh, nutrients there. So kind of give us kind of an overview of what you talked about in your presentation. Sure. Um, so I changed my title at the last second, you know, and uh, just to focus on sort of broadly just uh, the diversity in phosphatidylcholine species based on their fatty acid composition. So phosphatidylcholines have a glycerol backbone and then the uh, choline is on the third carbon there at the bottom connected through a phosphate group. But then at the first and second carbons of glycerol, you have fatty acids that are esterified. So when we say phosphatidylcholine, it's a bit of a misnomer because it should be phosphatidylcholine. So there's massive diversity in the type of phosphatidylcholines you can have depending on the fatty acid backbone. And so there's emerging research that the the uh, there's interactions between fatty acids in the diet, choline in the diet, and the type of phosphatidylcholines that are produced. Uh, and then they have diverse functions from there. And so uh, my talk focused on two areas I've worked in. So dietary choline's impact on the production of phosphatidylcholine species enriched in the omega-3 DHA, uh, specifically in pregnancy. And then I also, uh, uh, towards the latter end, threw in a little fun story about uh, interactions between lauric acid in the diet, which is a 12-carbon saturated fatty acid that folks have probably heard of less than the omega-3s that you hear about in fish oil and whatnot. Um, but it, lauric is in some tropical oils as well as breast milk, and it um, gets enriched within a phosphatidylcholine species that can actually bind to proteins that go and turn on, turn on and off genes. Um, so the protein we study is the liver receptor homolog one or LRH1 that recognizes and is bound by some specific phosphatidylcholine species. So it's a potential novel mechanisms through which dietary fatty acids, but also choline availability can influence gene expression is by modifying the synthesis of phosphatidylcholines that can bind and turn on proteins that go turn on genes. Oh, that's very interesting. So during your talk, you had shared some information about this metabolic relationship between choline and DHA and some of the clinical work that you've done. Could you just quickly sort of walk us through what you found in that trial? Yeah, so we were following up on animal work that sort of showed that knocking out this gene PEMT, which produces a phosphatidylcholine enriched in DHA, that that reduces the circulating availability of DHA for tissues outside the liver. And so that's sort of the, if you take it away, what happens? We're sort of answering the opposite question of in states where PEMT is really active and it's used, it's a methyl transferase, so it's, it requires methyl donors to be able to produce its PC product um, from phosphatidylethanolamine. We asked whether in pregnancy, when the activity of that enzyme gets really high, does it have enough methyl groups and enough choline to really be as active as we might want it to be? Um, and so it's known to be a major consumer of methyl groups, even in the adult animal, um, both males and females. And so in the pregnant state where the activity of PEMT is getting even higher, we think it was potentially burning through methyl donors and that supplementing with choline, which is a potent source of methyl donors in the diet, might have uh, helped facilitate its maximal activity. And that's pretty important because you're eating DHA in the diet, but it has to get processed by the body, including processed by the liver, and ultimately re-exported out for peripheral tissues to take it up. And uh, we think that the uh, efficient handling by the liver is compromised by inadequate choline intake during pregnancy. And we were able to show in a randomized controlled trial that gave a small amount of choline to a control group of about 25 milligrams, which is very minimal and sort of reflects what is in most prenatal vitamins if they include a choline at all versus 550 milligrams of choline, which are doses associated with cognitive benefits, that you could, despite getting the same dose of DHA, which was standard of care, 200 milligrams in both groups, you could dramatically improve the um, status indicators of DHA status. So we looked in 
the total amount circulating in blood. Um, we looked in the specific phosphatidylcholines with DHA circulating in blood, and then we looked in the red blood cell membrane, which is a marker of tissue enrichment with DHA. And they all increased from choline supplementation um, quite dramatically. And so we think that's pretty strong evidence that at least in pregnancy with choline supplementation that you can improve the handling and efficiency of DHA getting out of the liver and becoming available for peripheral tissues, including the developing fetus, by uh, supplementing choline alongside DHA. So for the moms then, I mean, could you just explain, you know, I'm sure uh, as nutritionists, all of us, the, the first question is, you know, what should I do? Why does this matter for me? So how would you explain this to a mom who you meet, you know, in the grocery store or wherever, right? Yeah, I usually use the analogy of, um, you know, to get the most out of dietary calcium, you need to take vitamin D at the same time. And that's why most people are familiar that calcium and vitamin D come together in a supplement. And there's sort of an, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's a reasonable analogy to say that choline and DHA, at least during pregnancy, are sort of the same situation. That if you want to get the most out of the DHA and actually get it into the tissue, which is where we want it, um, for it to be efficiently handled and processed by the body, you need to take choline as well, or at least cr have adequate amounts of choline. Um, and that's something that we, our, our trial only had the background diet and the background diet plus one dose. And so it would be lovely in the future to do some dose response studies to get, you know, figure out exactly how much choline in the diet is and plus supplements is needed to facilitate that improved DHA handling. But for right now, we can say the doses that are already associated with improved cognitive benefits also are improving uh, methyl metabolism and, and DHA availability. Kevin, what, just a kind of a follow-up. You had mentioned in pregnancy specifically, because I know that's where some of the best science is. Mm -hmm. um, is there any reason to think, or, or are there any indications that there might be synergies post-pregnancy between DHA and choline? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there's only a little bit of data on this topic uh, generally. And so Dr. Steve Zizel, who you guys have chatted with here as well, has some data from his choline deficiency feeding studies uh, looking in men, postmenopausal women, and um, women of reproductive age, and showing that it's really specific to the women of reproductive age that you see a reduction in PCDHA availability. And those are abject deficiency feeding studies. Um, we don't have a lot in the just normal general population with usual intakes, whether there's a re strong relationship between choline intake and DHA levels. But I think both our pregnancy work and that work from Dr. Zizel suggests that states of high estrogen that are really driving PEMT activity and making it an even more dramatic consumer of those methyl groups are, are states where they're responsive to the PCDHA levels are responsive to choline supplementation. And so I, I wouldn't um, write my first grant after this as a follow-up study to look at men to see if that synergy is there necessarily. I'd probably go back to the um, the reproductive state with uh, the women of reproductive age with high estrogen levels um, and, and check there to see if there's a functional synergy. Kevin, I'm going to throw you a bit of a curve uh, I'm I'm <laughs> from an That's animal science background. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but uh, so uh, you kind of caught my attention when you were talking about um, uh, phosphatidylcholine and the different fatty acid uh, backbones. And in dairy science, we, we feed a lot of 18-0, 18-1, Has there been any research with those specific fatty acids? Uh, if not, why not? And do you think there might be some, some advantages uh, with, with those fatty acids as the backbone? So they definitely get incorporated into, into phosphatidylcholine species. 
one of the challenges is that they're the most common fatty acids within the cell, and uh, the cell really likes to keep a relatively tight level of them, and to specifically change the levels of them in the cell and not change anything out, we don't really have great analytical tools to do that. There is um, some data to suggest that the PC that has a 16-0, so the palmitate, yeah. and then the 18-1 might be a ligand for a different nuclear receptor called peroxisome proliferator active receptor alpha, um, or PPAR alpha. Uh, it is to, to get the, to change the cellular phospholipidome to actually start to change PC levels, they had to feed like a fatty acid-free diet and all sorts of crazy scenarios to start to suggest that this binds PPAR alpha. Um, so th this is a, a big problem for the field is that protein lipid interactions is an area where we don't have a lot of tools. Um, and then it, just changing the metabolome of the cell, the cell resists this. And so some of our work with Lorate and DHA are facilitated by the fact that our bodies are pretty bad at synthesizing DHA and are, we almost eat no lauric acid and we don't synthesize much either. And so you can start to influence the composition of the, fat, the fatty acid pools that get incorporated into to PC within the cell by changing the diet. Whereas changing the diet level of 16-0 or 18-0, 18-1, cause we can endogenously synthesize those, eating more from the diet can just downregulate production that, uh, within the cell. And so um, the levels of those are much, much harder to, to change. And this goes back to really old animal feeding studies looking at like, you know, if you change the fatty acid composition of the diet from 0% saturated fatty acid all the way up to like 80% of energy coming from it, there is a flat line between the 16-0 composition of cell membranes. And so the cell really tightly resists, so it'll downregulate its own synthesis, it'll oxidize that exogenous 16-0 that's coming in. And so there is, I think, less enthusiasm for the non-essential and for the rare um, uh, fatty acids that they, because the cell can make them, it's much better at resisting changes in the phospholipidome. But I'm happy to be wrong. Um, <laughs> one of the things of, of interest is within the subcellular compartmentalization, po folks are looking at the cytoplasm versus the plasma membrane versus the nuclear envelope versus the mitochondria and the phospholipidomes there and what PC species are present. And it seems like the nuclear uh, envelope, which is where also the nuclear receptors are hanging out and go and bind to the genome, that it has a unique fatty acid composition of the phospholipids there, and they tend to be predominantly saturated, con consistent with some of the work that we've focused on lorate. Um, so there's, there's more work that we want to do in that space to try and identify other highly saturated PCs that are enriched within that nuclear envelope that might be talking to the genome. Yep, always more work to be done. I know, we just need all that funding. Yeah, exactly. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Really enjoyed your presentation and uh, love the uh, podcast here. Thanks thank you again. so much for having me back. You're all very right. welcome. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. And we're back. Uh, our guest this time is Dr. Rick Canfield from Cornell University. Rick, I had the pleasure of uh, talking with you yesterday and meeting with you. We also have a Rick Canfield in the dairy science business, but you are not he. Not that I know of. <laughs> but no. you, but you did, uh, you did milk a cow when you were uh, a young man. Had yeah. had your own cow and milked your brother's cow. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Oh well, I grew up in a farm in Western Washington, and we had about every kind of animal. Um, and uh, so I count myself as a farm kid. But uh, yeah, I was in 4-H and FFA, and and I had a uh, a Holstein. Yeah. And uh, my brother had a Jersey, and my grandfather was a Jersey man, uh -huh. and he said. People criticize Jerseys because they don't give much milk. 
They say you can uh, put a quarter in the bucket right. and milk a jersey dry, and you still see the quarter. <laughs> yeah. And my grandfather said, yeah, but with, uh, you know, Holsteins, the uh, milk is so thin that, you know, you put the quarter in the bucket, you milk the cow dry, fill the bucket to the top, and you can still, still see, see the, the quarter, quarter at the yeah. bottom. So <laughs> that's my background. Yeah, yeah, very well. So that, that's great background. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, academic background and some of the research that you're doing? Sure. Um, well, I'm a developmental psychologist by training. I uh, work uh, with... Uh, you know, infant and early child cognition, uh, and really focus my training on basic measures of, you know, how the brain works, especially with the visual system, uh, and how you could use the visual system, the eye movements uh, of an infant, to measure their uh, cognitive function. And so uh, that work kind of serendipitously became very valuable when I learned about this choline uh, project that was being done at Cornell by Marie Cadell. And she had, was, she was focused on pregnancy. And then she knew I did infant cognition. And she said, hey, can you do something with these babies? And so then I, I looked at the, you know, we designed a study to look at visual cognition and, and speed of information processing with babies in the first year of life. And uh, so I've been looking at, you know, maternal choline supplementation and infant and now child cognition and what are the effects of, of supplementation with uh, additional choline. Interesting. Now, I understand they also had a follow-up study where they uh, looked at the kids when they were seven years of age. Is that yeah. right? Were so you involved in that? Yeah. So um, I started, uh, you know, with the kids at... Uh, in the first year of life, uh, looked at them at four time points, and uh, it was a small study, but when I analyzed the data, the results were so consistent with showing a, a benefit, you know, across the entire first year of life in terms of faster processing speed by uh, the children who had higher, uh, children whose moms had higher choline intake during pregnancy, and this was a supplementation trial, so they had a lot of choline in, in one group and a good amount in the other. Um, that, then we saw the results for the babies and knew that the, you know, lots of work in rodents on choline supplementation and cognition found effects throughout adulthood and into old age. And so the expectation is that these are, you know, potentially very, you know, permanent effects. So we uh, brought the children back at seven and a half years. They were living all over the world, frankly, and we flew them, some of them in, and we flew to them, and, and, uh, but we got the sample back together and, and looked at the children's uh, memory and uh, sustained attention and problem-solving skills. Uh, and we were really quite surprised that there really were strong effects of this early, you know, this prenatal intervention. It was 12 weeks of choline supplementation in the third trimester of pregnancy. Uh, and how much? Well, in the, we had two groups, and it was a, called a controlled feeding study. So uh, the women ate all their meals from the kitchen, and the, the meals had uh, 380 milligrams of choline per day, and that's a little higher than what most women eat naturally in the, in the U.S. and many places. Um, and then 
So all the women had 380 milligrams. Half of them got a an extra choline supplement of 100 milligrams a day of choline chloride, uh, and the other half got uh, 550 milligrams a day. So that brought their total choline intake to either 480 milligrams or 930 milligrams. And the 480 milligrams is kind of a close to a special number, which is the, what's the adequate intake level for pregnant women that um, the Institute of Medicine uh, you know, developed in 1998. Um, which is not a much, it's, it's a, a pretty rough guide. It's not a really strong number, but it's kind of what the recommendation is. And we showed that twice as much choline caused cognitive benefits through seven and a half years of age in the offspring. Yeah, sorry, Tom, but I got one more question. <laughs> but the, the, the 480, uh, uh, from what I've heard uh, today, that, that seems higher than what most people are actually really getting, most women. Right. Most women. So Is that right? most women, uh, just from their foods, are eating, the average is around 325. Okay. So they eat uh, you know, about 70% of what is recommended, but our data show that twice what is recommended is better than the recommendation. Yeah. See, we couldn't randomize women to deficient choline. Got so it. our low choline group is right around what the recommended intake is. Yeah. Um, and and you know the the reasoning for the design of the study is uh, again based on a lot of work in rodents that um, you know much higher choline than what's in rodent chow produces lifelong benefits in cognition and aging-related decline and memory and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the design of this study was kind of to kind of replicate that. Uh, the rodent studies give four and a half times as much choline as in rat chow. We weren't comfortable with right. doing that, but um, I think in the end, uh, Dr. Marie Cadell, who you know gets all the credit for designing the pregnancy part of this study, uh, really made a a really uh, wise choice in her dosing. So you said there are strong differences. Can you uh, quantify that at all? Yeah, um, it's um, so one of the one of the challenges to quantifying this in a way that most people understand is that um, standardized tests like an IQ test are not very sensitive to these effects of choline because the IQ test is very general. Um, it has some measures of memory and attention, but they're not really uh, penetrating measures. They're not really challenging. Um, and so even though IQ is something that people feel like they understand, um, it, it doesn't provide the kind of really precise tests of certain aspects of cognition that have been shown to be benefited by early choline intake uh, in the rodent work. And so... Um, but we used uh, some tests, like a, there's a working memory test, and working memory is like, can you, you know, keep information active in memory in order to, you know, uh, work on it, to, to um, make decisions, to plan things? Uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you've only got a small working memory capacity, you fill it up and then something falls out, and we've all had that experience, mm. I'm sure. Yeah. So something falls out, Twice and then you know you got You know you can't you can't solve the problem because you can't keep it all in the mind at the same time. Um, so we did a, a, a really challenging working memory task for our kids, and um, 
uh, it was so challenging that the highest number of, or the average for the, um, uh, for the choline group for the number of items they could remember over a short delay was three items. Um, but for the control kids, those that got the 480, um, they could only remember two on average. And so that, you know, you want to think about that, that's 50% increase in working memory capacity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this two versus three is a kind of an underestimate in a, you know, from an intuitive sense because this task was so challenging, kids had to remember the spatial location of something and what color appeared in a certain location. And every trial, it would switch to new locations. So there's a lot of what we call proactive interference. Uh, so it's a very demanding task. I mean, it, it, it challenged us. So it, it sounds like, you know, two versus three isn't much, but on that scale of difficulty, it's really quite a large effect. Mm. So that's one example. Mm. I think it w one of the things we've always talked about when we refer to the work that's been done is it's just really compelling to think about mom took something and seven years later, there's still a positive impact yeah. of that. It's just not something you hear of very often in right. nutrition research. Are you going to continue to follow this group? Because I think we saw some of, the, some of the presentations showed us, hey, there's an impact certainly through old age in mice. So yeah. chances to keep going? Yeah, well, you know, my age is a limiting factor on how far I can go, but um, but we still we do have uh, a, a current study that's underway with the same children, and they're now 14 years of age, and uh, we're doing some in-depth cognitive testing on memory and attention and learning and reasoning, um, and impulse control and and lots of different tests, um, a kind of a computerized neuropsych test battery. Um, we're sort of uh, a quarter of the way into that study at this point. Uh, and, you know, it's, it will be interesting to see if we can, you know, find benefits that are continuing. I mean, because there is some rodent data that suggests or that, or that shows that the, um, one of the effects of choline is to, you know, accelerate early development. That is, that it kind of gives kids, or uh, the rat pups or the mice, a precocious developmental timetable. So they do things in memory tasks before other, you know, normal mice. So you could think, you know, on the one hand, there's a permanent effect. On another hand, on the other hand, like maybe our kids are just a little bit ahead. Head start. Yeah. And, and that might mean that they, you know, they get more out of their life and experience and they actually end up being better their whole life or they could, you know, the controls might catch up. So that's kind of a, a hypothesis here is to kind of, is there kind of catch up or in fact, might there be an expansion of benefit? I mean, there's, we don't know how it will go, but those are some of the things that we're really interested to, to learn about. And those results are expected when do you think? Um, so, uh, so the, the testing is based on the kid's age, mm -hmm. and we had to recruit over about a year and a half. Okay. So our kids, you know, it'll take a year and a half to go through the whole yeah. cohort. Mm -hmm. So um, probably in about a year from now, maybe a year and a half from now is when we expect to be through that. Okay. Identified any Cornelians yet? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. no. They're, 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 they, they can 
are yeah there a lot of the kids can go wherever they want right. let's yeah, put it yeah. that way so i don't know i don't know if they're dedicated to cornell yet <laughs> right, i'll right. work on it yeah yeah now in the in the in the study you talked about a controlled feeding aspect to it did that control for other nutrients etc too so we know confidently that this is due to the choline yeah this so it's a really important question and it's it's um something that i i find difficult to kind of say enough to get it across but all the nutrients were controlled other than choline. So it really fits the ideal of a randomized control experiment where we didn't know who was in it, which group, the, you know, the participants didn't know which group they were in, and they all took the same prenatal vitamin and DHA, and they ate the same, the same menu. And so all of their nutrients within a small error bar somehow, mm -hmm. uh, were identical, and the only difference was the amount of choline that was in their diet. Yeah. So that's, that's unique among human studies at this point, and, um, and, our, and I think our results are probably more powerful and more consistent than other studies, and it might be because our design is so clean that it's you know, really a powerful tool for showing what the um, effect of the prenatal choline supplement was. So we've seen it's gotten mice and humans now. What can you do with a more intelligent cow? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> about that. We've actually had a few uh, symposia that we, we put on, and uh, I forget what the title was, uh, you know, something about making your cow smart or something. It was a way to <laughs> kind of get people's attention. Uh, kind of one real quick last question. Um, I've seen some presentations today that are talking about even higher levels of choline than what you had in your trials. Any thoughts related to that? Um, do you think perhaps there is uh, room for, for improvement with more choline? And then are there any follow-up trials to maybe take a look at that? Yeah, so um, I'm going to use a standard answer to that. That's an empirical question, which means that we, we don't know we really don't know how much choline women need, yeah. and we don't know if individual women with different kind of genotypes or different uh, experiences, um, if they need different amounts. Um, so um, the, the trials that gave much more choline for the most part were like uh, prenatal alcohol exposure trials, and, and one of the you know, hypothesized pathways for the beneficial effects of early choline is that it is you know, 60% of our methyl groups for DNA methylation uh, come from choline in the diet. So, uh, and, and alcohol has a really, you know, challenging effect on, on the need for methyl groups. So they gave a lot more than you might think that there's a need for more. Um, but, uh, you know, we continue to try to find funding to do a trial, what's called a dose-response trial, where we can uh, give doses across a range of levels uh, so that we can see if there is a, you know, a plateau or, um, or maybe even a downturn. Maybe, maybe too much is too much, but we don't know where that is. And at this point, um, you know, until we can get I think some some you know strong dose response information, we won't be able to answer the question of you know should women have even more than our 930 milligrams a day in our study? Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. Yeah, you know we've talked a little bit about um, obviously this is a pregnancy model where mom's getting the choline. 
I just quickly wanted to say the thing that I get most when I talk about this is, hey, does that mean that if I didn't get enough choline through mom when I was young that it's the, you know, I don't get any benefit? I assume choline has benefits postnatally as well. Well, I mean, actually the conference is going to educate me some more on that uh, uh, tomorrow. Um, there is some evidence for benefits of choline at, in postnatal life, um, and uh, but it's I think it's a little less certain than the prenatal benefit. Um, one study that I find interesting is that it's a, a large, uh, I think it's from the Boston Nurses Study, where they did dietary records throughout midlife, um, and they, uh, when the participants were, I think, in their 70s or 80s, they did brain scans to look at kind of white matter irregularities, you know, like damp, you know, sort of deteriorated white matter, and found that there were fewer of these white matter abnormalities in the uh, participants who reported having higher kind of choline intake through midlife, okay? Mm. So that, you know, it's not a strong experimental design, but I find it, uh, well, let's just say I found it compelling enough data along with the other things that I know that I actually take a choline supplement. So, um, so, so, so again, we don't really know the benefits. Um, uh, I, I think there's possibility for, you know, I mean, young children tend to get the recommended amount in because they drink a lot of milk, but then when they stop drinking so much milk, then there's a shortfall around the age five or so. I also think there's issues with certain groups like uh, kids with milk and egg allergies. Um, and they go from maybe breast milk, and then when they go on complementary foods, the choline plummets, mm. and, and that could be a real problem because the brain is still very actively developing during that time. So I think there's, there's a lot of issues that I think we have yet to learn about and, and a lot of you know, groups that um, may have special needs for more choline that, um, you know, that even remain unidentified, although we have kind of hypotheses about where they might be. Yeah. So. Lots of research to do yeah. still. Yeah. Yeah. Final question, Rick. <coughs> this has been enjoyable, by the way. Yeah. Uh, if you're talking with a, a group of uh, uh, future mothers, uh, based on your research, any practical advice you could give them? Well, um, yeah, I, I tell them that my, my own research and research from my group at Cornell and, and other research that I'm familiar with leads me to think that, uh, that women should have, uh, you know, somewhere well above 450 milligrams a day, which is very challenging to get from the diet. Uh, it means a lot of beef and a lot of eggs every day. Uh, and, you know, that's not so consistent with most young women's diets. Um, and so, um, you know, I generally would think that it's best to get your nutrients from foods, um, but in some cases, it's, you know, very challenging or impractical. And I also think there might be a benefit to having the choline there every day because we metabolize it very quickly and we've got lots of uses for it. And, uh, you know, we never know when a mother is going to get an infection and then the need for methyl groups will 
skyrocket due to immune cell you know, proliferation and inflammation and DNA damage, et cetera. And that's when you want to make sure you've got enough choline for the mom and for the baby. And so, um, you know, dietary intake, it's going to go up and down from day to day. And so I think there's maybe a kind of protective uh, possibility for a choline supplement um, that brings them, you know, they, they could, you know, choose somewhere. I wouldn't recommend more than 930 because I don't have any evidence from of my own that I can point to, but I, 930 was safe and, um, and, uh, and it was better than 480. So, you know, they can choose within that range where they feel comfortable. Yeah, makes sense. Rick, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, we, we really look forward to <laughs> hearing more about the 14-year-old. Yeah, kids. so do I. <laughs> It'll be very interesting. Yeah, so, yeah excellent. So well, thanks thank for Thank you so much. Yes, this is, this is a lot of fun. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate it. Yeah, bye. Thanks. Welcome back, everyone. Our next guest is Dr. Colin Carter. He's with the Institute of Human Nutrition and Departments of Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine at Columbia University. Uh, Colin, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Glad to have you here today. Thanks very much. Listen to your uh, uh, presentation earlier today. Found it uh, very fascinating. Uh, before we get started into that, uh, would you mind giving the audience just kind of an overview of yourself and uh, some of the work that you're doing? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a pediatrician at Columbia, as you mentioned. My clinical world's in pediatric emergency medicine, uh, but I've been doing work in longitudinal birth cohorts, looking at how events that happen during pregnancy affect long-term child development uh, for about 20 years. And my focus has mainly been looking at fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, and my particular interest has been in how uh, both maternal and child nutrition might impact uh, the teratogenic effects of alcohol. Okay, okay. And that, that was pretty much an overview of the presentation today as well. Um, why don't you give us kind of a, uh, maybe a little more detailed explanation of some of the findings that you presented during the presentation today. Sure. So, you know, um, prenatal alcohol exposure is the most common preventable cause of developmental delay worldwide. And I think a lot of people working both clinically and in the research world for a long time have been a bit almost frustrated with the disease because we're learning more and more about kind of how alcohol affects development. But, uh, you know, it's hard to know how to fix this problem. And I think for a lot of people, they say, oh, just get the pregnant woman to stop drinking. And I, I've definitely had paper reviews and grant reviews that have said that. And, and um, you know, it, it's just so, so short-sighted. Uh, alcohol use is a really complicated problem for a lot of people. Also, by the time we meet pregnant women, often they're halfway through their pregnancy already. And... Um, and then asking someone who has an alcohol use disorder to just, you know, stop drinking like that when there are only however many weeks left of pregnancy is probably not realistic for a lot of women. And so looking at animal models, um, supplementing a pregnant dam, uh, usually in a rodent model, with choline seems to ameliorate uh, at least some of the teratogenic effects of alcohol. And so in our birth cohorts in South Africa, we've been really interested in testing this hypothesis. And so we did a pilot feasibility study um, 
um, and just 70 women, uh, really looking at feasibility, trying to see could we even really do a, an effective or, or a real uh, high, robust uh, clinical trial in heavy drinking pregnant women? And the answer was yes, but, but notably in only 70 women, we saw some pretty impressive treatment effects. And so I went over those today. We saw beneficial effects of choline treatment on, uh, on growth, but also on neurobehavior and memory in, uh, in these kids. And so that's been pretty exciting. It's, um, you know, no one's going to change clinical practice on a global scale, at least on, s on a study of 70 mother-child pairs. And so now we're doing a larger clinical trial, um, hopefully with a subject number of around 300 that we started just this past April. And so hopefully in the next few years, we'll have some more definitive results. And where will that take place at, but that trial? Also in Cape Town, yeah, okay, in South okay. Africa. Yeah. And uh, you picked Cape Town because? So, it, you know, interestingly, um, I mean, for me, one of the reasons why I want to keep working there is because that's where I think people have um, almost the greatest chance of benefit because uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders is so prevalent there. Um, but and we know that FASD are really common in the United States as well, maybe 2 to 5% of school-aged children. But it's really hard to recruit for studies like that. So, you know, we've done projections and to really recruit for a random a randomized clinical trial of 300 kids, um, you'd probably have to screen, you know, several thousand women in the United States. And so with <laughs> NIH budgets, that's not really that feasible. Um, and so the study's a little bit, you know, more feasible to do in South Africa as well. But again, like my hope, you know, choline's not patentable. It's very in inexpensive. My hope is that with the results of the study, we could potentially see some, um, you know, policy changes where this might become supplementation for heavy drinking pregnant women that might become the norm. Mm -hmm. Follow-up question on that, because I know one of the things that's, uh, you know, a little bit... <coughs> Obviously, it's a, a big problem, but I think it's not just, you know, it, it tends to affect people at different socioeconomic levels. Right. So you talk about the population you're looking at. Um, little known fact, but actually the reason we have the American um, Medical Association recommendation is because of a psychiatrist in Chicago named Carl Bell, Dr. Carl Bell. And he did a lot of work sort of getting into inner city effects of FASD and how it keeps, you know, kind of the, the inner city population in a difficult position. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering in, in terms of that, do you think there are social like w aspects and pressure on the policy? I've seen similar types of things out of the University of Colorado with, you know, underserved populations right. and having that huge impact you're talking about. Right. I mean, I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, um, if you look at diseases like cystic fibrosis or, um, you know, other like relatively rare pediatric diseases that tend to affect uh, a broader spectrum of the population or a more affluent perspective uh, 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 slice of the population. You have like parent advocacy groups, you have school advocacy, group, advocacy groups, you have marathons and things like this raising uh, funds and awareness. And I think because of the stigma around right. drinking pr during pregnancy, but I think also because it tends to occur more commonly in impoverished populations, you have less of this advocacy and this awareness. So I, 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 if anything, I feel um, like one of my jobs when I give these talks is to impress upon e people uh, what, a, what a big public health problem this is and how under-recognized it is. Um, I think, um, but then that also means that this is a population that really could benefit, you know, greatly, um, which is exciting. So... Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, as far as kind of, in a way, like kind of cycles uh, of kind of perpetuating poverty, you know, you look at South Africa and, and in the ethnic group that we work with, um, FASD are, you know, 
uh, at least prevalent in 10% of the kids in, in the community we're in. And if you think about from a diminished potential perspective, it's like that's just going to perpetuate the poverty that's already there, and the poverty perpetuates the drinking. So it, it'd be nice to try to start to break this cycle somehow, even if we could just start chipping at it, you know. So. How much of it is alcoholism versus kids being kids? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question globally. Within South Africa, um, you know, the women in our studies are drinking, they're binge drinking, you know, the, the somewhere around eight to 10 drinks per occasion, but mainly on a few weekends a month. They're not your chronic alcoholics that you picture when you hear alcohol use disorder. Um, where I do, th for this recent study that we just started in April, uh, in a way that we hadn't seen before, we were finding women when we were screening who were drinking a lot, um, particularly women who worked on vineyards um, and on fruit farms mm. where alcohol is really available, drinking like a, like a lot, you know, even more than we had seen before, like 12, 15 drinks per occasion, three weekends a month. But they find out they're pregnant and they were stopping drinking, which is very exciting because I, I hadn't seen that kind of change in the behavior in the South African cohorts. Um, you know, and I've been working there since 2000. But um, I think uh, what that speaks to to me is the women we noticed who were stopping drinking tended to be employed, and they tended, and this is very qualitative, but I don't have a p-value for this, but they tended to ask us if they could go over the consent form with their boyfriends or their mothers, which to me really signified more family involvement. And it's like, okay, here's a group of women who are at, do you know, taking, partaking in risky behavior, like most people in their young 20s do. You know, there's a reason why car insurance is more expensive before you turn 25. Sure. And, uh, but then they're able to stop, whereas the women in our studies in the past and the women who we're, we're recruiting now, who tend to keep drinking are women who, you know, are, tend to be unemployed or underemployed and tend to have kind of the stresses of poverty adding to them. And, you know, if you're really stressed, it's a lot harder to say no to, to something that pretty much guarantees you a good Friday night, you know. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, prevalence as it relates to dose, uh, persistency, and even stage of uh, gestation? Sure, sure. Maybe I'll speak to the stage of gestation first because it's yep. easy. Uh, you know, alcohol is definitely dangerous through the whole pregnancy. Got it. From the animal models, we're learning that, you know, there are different effects. Like, certainly, if you want to look at the effects of alcohol on specific organs like cardiac development, most of the heart's formed after the f by the end of the first trimester. So that's where you're most vulnerable there. But when we think about kind of the dim diminished potential and the things that matter to, to adults living with FASD, we think about the social learning and cognitive delays. Those are going to occur in different ways by alcohol causing brain damage throughout gestation. Okay. So um, I will say that, like, when I meet people who've been to like a couple weddings before they knew they were pregnant who just got drunk a couple of times during the first trimester, I, I try to be really reassuring there, you know. So we're talking about chronic exposure to binge drinking that's really the most um, concerning and the most risky. Um, there's a really neat group of papers that are coming out right now from... Um, uh, from a, a, a large group. So uh, in the 1980s and 90s, there were a few major FASD prospective birth courts in the United States. One was in Detroit with Sandy and Joe Jacobson. Uh, two were in Atlanta with Claire Coles. There's one in Pittsburgh with Nancy Day. And then another in Seattle with Anne Streisguth, who, who's unfortunately passed away, but she's uh, one of her um, protégés, who's uh, now really an established investigator. Heather Carmichael Olson's been taking over from that. And they got together, and, and you know, the advances in meta-analysis over the last 15 years have been really huge. And they um, worked with some really um, amazing biostatisticians to pool their cohorts and try to get 
at the qu these questions of effect sizes and uh, kind of what are the dose patterns that most affect uh, the brain. And what's really neat is they can look at kind of this in tandem two uh, measures of exposure. One is like dose per occasion, so how much is a person drinking when they drink, and then the other is drinking frequency. And so instead of getting like this, um, you know, number, like you shouldn't drink more than two drinks per day on average. They get these almost weather maps where you can say like, okay, what's the risk? Or, you know, how many, like not IQ points, but how many, you know, standardized points or, or standard deviations from the mean are you likely to drop if your mother drank this frequency at this dose? You can almost calculate it there. And so what you see is what you'd expect is that at really infrequent drinking, you can get, you know, you can drink pretty good amount per occasion a couple of times during pregnancy without worrying. And then at more common drinking, um, you, you know, you don't have to drink as much as, as you'd guess. So, but I, I, I do think like the, the fundam, there were kind of two fundamental lessons. One is that binge drinking is really the problem regardless of frequency. Um, and the other is we were kind of expecting a, a hockey stick pattern of dose response where at the lower levels you probably wouldn't see much and then as you cross some third threshold it starts to climb and we didn't see that there's really like a linear effect throughout mm -hmm. of course the effects at really really low doses you know per occasion and low frequency are are small it's like you're not going to have a kid who's going to necessarily have trouble struggling in school at those really really low doses but we didn't see that um kind of we call it a hockey stick but that that kind of flattened line of of no effect that then starts to creep up past a certain threshold um and, and that was a surprise but i think it also jives with what the clinicians have been saying all along which is that you know effectively no amount of drinking during pregnancy is safe mm -hmm. at the same time if someone drinks a couple of times before they learn they're pregnant they shouldn't worry too much that their kids gonna have a lot of trouble mm -hmm. it's uh you know it's, it's we're all human and like you think about all the things people do with like not getting their hair dyed and avoiding deli meat and all of mm -hmm. these things and i think at these lower lower levels of of um exposure you know we're, we're really kind of splitting hairs there if yeah. that makes sense no that makes sense tom anything else no, I just think <coughs> I think we've seen a lot of information from you know several speakers about you know the the deficit of choline potentially being a problem. So it just seems like now you've got potentially a, a, another effect where you know you've got a population that may not be getting adequate choline to begin with. Right. They need more during pregnancy, yeah. and suddenly they have these insults. So I can see how this is a major game changer for these types of pregnancies. Yeah, I, I really I hope you so. on the work. Yeah. yeah. I hope so, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's exciting because it's something that's feasible. You know, we don't need a $75,000 medication regimen here, you know. Yeah. So. You know, I don't want to get the cart before the horse, but <laughs> I found myself thinking, okay, um, is, one, how are you going to get it into them, right? Is it going to be a supplement? If they're not willing to stop drinking, are they going to be willing to take a supplement? Mm -hmm. And then if they do, is it going to be almost a license to be able to drink because I've got this... Uh, I, uh, lots of questions, yeah. right? It's uh, they're all questions that keep me up at night, and <laughs> I have to almost like say I'm not allowed to think about that after <laughs> 8 p.m. You know, like my worst nightmare is that you know absolute vodka teams up with Balcam and creates like a choline <laughs> vodka. Not gonna <laughs> have <laughs> <that>. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Don, Jonathan, we have a regulatory group. Don't <laughs> yeah, worry. Jonathan <laughs> and I have, have, have joked about that, and not so much joked, but we, you know, uh, we've shared that fear. And, and uh, you know, I don't think there's any nutrient or intervention that's gonna block all of the effects of alcohol. And I think that messaging can be pretty clear from from bef you know before the horse or the cart are on the road. Um, I think you know. 
like as I said earlier, stopping your alcohol patterns is complicated. And I think um, I think you're right that if you know the first focus should always be on alcohol reduction. And then if we do some sort of choline supplementation for heavy drinking pregnant women, it really has to be tied to like also trying to reduce alcohol. Otherwise, you're missing an opportunity too. Again, like with what I was mentioning with the uh, impact of poverty, like you know we should be doing that kind of thing as part of a holistic support intervention, not just like, sh you know, handing them a box of choline and saying, good luck with your pregnancy, um, for sure. Unfortunately, as a public health world, we're pretty bad at a lot of those things. So yeah. um, I want to be optimistic and yet somewhat cynical. And, uh, and then lastly, I think the question of how to give it to them, we've been doing the choline trials with a, a beverage powder that looks a little bit like those crystal like drink crystal light drink packs that people use they like the single serving ones and the women have been really willing to do it um and uh i think we're lucky that in south africa there's like a, a few soft drinks that taste pretty similar to it that people really like so we we were surprised at um how feasible it was and how well the uptake was i don't know how that'll be on a global scale but i i think thinking creatively in general about how to get big doses of choline to people is really smart um there's a guy here from Baylor Children's who said he had uh, worked on a, a formulation where they could bake a, a, a good gram of uh, choline chloride into a lemon uh, tasting, a lemon flavored cookie that, that people really liked. And I said, oh, that's great. You know, like I'm all for it. And actually, if you really want to improve adherence, maybe you have a few options. Like today you can have the beverage mm. or the cookie, you know. <laughs> the well, and I think the good news is, is that we're seeing on our side, at least from consumer insights, that people are much more open to food and beverage fortification. Sure. So, you know, that traditional got to have it in a single tablet is yeah. going away now. So yeah, that's I think awesome. that's a good thing for everyone. Yeah, and for not for a lot of nutrients, right? Like uh, we could use a, a, some better uh, adaptable formulations for things like iron, too. And Absolutely. So. Yeah. Final question, if you were to put together an um, elevator speech for your talk today, what would that be? Um, I would say that, you know, again, I'd always start with the fact that prenatal alcohol exposure is really such an under-recognized cause of, of brain damage and developmental delay worldwide um, that, you know, we should always focus on harm reduction and decreasing prenatal alcohol exposure where we can, and, and as I mentioned, in a real holistic supportive approach to women who are drinking when they're pregnant. Uh, but there's some real exciting hope here for choline to possibly, you know, mitigate at least some of the teratogenic effects of alcohol in the case where the woman's unable to reduce her drinking or where she's already been drinking for a good amount of the pregnancy already. Mm. Very well said. Fascinating research, important research, and I thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. Tonight's last call question is brought to you by NitroSure Precision Release Nitrogen. NitroSure delivers a complete TMR for the rumen microbiome, helping you feed the microbes that feed your cows. To learn more about maximizing microbial protein output while reducing your carbon footprint, visit balcom.com slash NitroSure. Hello everyone, we just completed day one of the Future Directions in Choline Symposia. Um, I'm here with uh, three guests. Of course, I've got Tom Drew, uh, my co-host, trusty uh, co-host. I've also got Susan Smith, who's the Deputy Director of the University of North Carolina um, 
Nutrition Research Institute. Quite a title. It's a mouthful. Uh, it is. <laughs> and I've got uh, Dr. Joe McFadden from Cornell University, and our audience is uh, obviously well uh, familiar with you, Joe. Uh, what I'd like to ask you guys to do, and uh, Susan, I'm going to start with you first. Kind of give us a just kind of a, a 30,000 foot overview of day one. And, and just kind of remind everybody, day one, we were taking a look at uh, choline's use in prenatal nutrition and childhood nutrition. So what were some of the big takeaways for you? Yeah, we had an exciting day of presentations and it was nice to see how far the field has come since uh, we've had the last interactions to to look at the data. And what's coming out is this reoccurring message that choline is so important in prenatal health and in early postnatal periods. Um, one of the messages is that pregnant women and women who are lactating generally don't take enough choline. Only 10% of pregnant women are, are hitting those targets and the same thing for lactation. I was struck by a discovery or, or discussion that in fact pregnancy and lactation can make a woman choline deficient. That further emphasizes her needs. And then we saw a lot of data about why is this important and talked about the cognitive importance for healthy brain development in the, the fetus and in the infant. And a lot of very compelling data in human studies showing how Choline status really improves the v various cognitive functions in the child. Yeah, well said. I actually think one of the fascinating things that I took away um, is that it was really first deemed essential because of its essentiality in liver function. But when you look at the cognitive and the prenatal aspects, it may be that we need even as high as double the amount that the, um, you know, that the current AIs are set at. So. That's right. It was well, very fascinating. Back in 1998, we had limited information. We had only really appreciated how choline was important and that it was essential for what, maybe 20 years before that at the most. And so what I, I like is that we're seeing this snowball, I guess, of data coming in, showing how it touches so many facets of human health. And it's so important in early development in, of the infant and the child that we spent a whole day on that. The data were just very compelling. Yeah, it was a great day. Joe, we've got uh, some of the top choline scientists from around the world at this symposia. Speaking, they were all human nutritionists today, so you're the lone uh, animal nutritionist. Uh, did you learn anything that uh, might want to have you do research to make cows smarter? Oh, yeah, so I mean, it's a real a real unique opportunity to hear about, you know, the, the cognitive function and, and the impact that choline sort of nutrition has on that. And from my perspective, this is something we don't get to talk too much about, but we do think about choline feeding and pregnancy a lot. And there's some new research looking at sort of colostrum production in animals. And I think we need to take that a step further to look at what that impact might have on, on young animals uh, uh, during their, their growth phase. You know, it was pretty obvious too when I, when I was here that we talk a lot about pregnant women and, and, and the, that inadequacy in, in women in general, but you know, the information that was shared in, in adult men too, there's also a concern that I think often gets overlooked and something we need to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah well said. Well, one of the reasons that your data and, and what you shared with us about cattle production and the need for choline is so striking is when I think back to the human populations, the one group that gets choline adequacy intake are young children. Mm -hmm. And much of that choline is coming from their milk. So the need for choline, in, in addition to supporting animal health, is also coming in because it is such a, 
important source of choline in our diets. Yeah, and, and from, from my perspective, that's why I was so excited to be around folks, because I think that the urgency to think about choline in foods and how do we how do we promote the intake of those foods, but even within the food themselves, like milk, what can we do at the cow level to provide more choline in the milk is, is a really exciting opportunity. Yeah. You know, what? Susan, I was just, I'm sorry, Tom, I was just going to add real quick that, uh, and this is going to support our dairy industry, but when you <laughs> said, you know, the, the kids are getting choline from milk, now that's cow's milk. That's, that's not, that is cow's that's milk. That's not nut juices. Yes. That's cow's that's, milk. That's right. So I just want to make sure we got that in there. Your plant products would have to be fortified yeah. with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other part that was really interesting is when you come back to the considerations for the mother, you know, whether it's the mother cow or the mom, um, you've really got the circumstance where if the baby can't get it, um, it's going to demand it through the mom. So mom's choline status really comes down. And I think we hear so much about pregestational diabetes. I almost wonder in the future if we'll know about pregestational non-alcoholic fatty liver disease yeah. during pregnancy. So there's so many interesting things. Yeah. So you raise a really good point because, in fact, fatty liver disease of pregnancy is a health concern. And so we're very interested in asking that question. The choline is also going to help reduce that risk in the mothers. Yeah. Yeah, great. Thanks for joining us today. It's been a great day. Looking forward to day two tomorrow. Turn our sights to adults. And so I want to thank you guys for joining us. To our little listeners, uh, thank you as well for joining us. I hope you learned something. Hope you had some fun. And we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash realscience to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.